It's time now for a special edition of Encounter with your host, Eben Fowler. Well, good afternoon and welcome to this special Encounter broadcast. Uh, what we're going to do today is recap the National Right to Life Convention that was held back at the end of June right here in Kansas City. And sitting across from me is our manager of public affairs, Andrew Yates, who's going to help walk us through this as well. Andrew, welcome. This was Thank you. This was a, a wonderful time to be informed and catch up on the latest that is happening in the National Right to Life movement. The first cut that we're going to be hearing is from uh, Carol Tobias, and she's the president of National Right to Life. And she talks about the fact that this is the 50th anniversary of the NRL as an organization. This year we are recognizing the 50th anniversary of National Right to Life, so I'm thrilled that you are here with us uh, this week to recognize that as well. And I do use the word recognize. This isn't a celebration. Of course I am proud of National Right to Life, of our state affiliates, of our chapters, of our wonderful volunteers. We've had 50 great years, but we are all sad that there was ever a need that an organization like this existed in the first place. We should not have to be spending so much time and energy to protect innocent, vulnerable human life. But an organized, focused effort was necessary. During the 1960s, there were attempts to legalize abortion in various states. In 1966 and 67, those efforts were defeated in Minnesota, New York, and Virginia, but successful in Colorado, the first state to legalize abortion. The successful effort to defeat pro-abortion legislation in Virginia was led by a new group formed for that purpose, the Virginia Society for Human Life, more commonly known really as VSHL. This fledgling group of ordinary yet extraordinary citizens received a letter from a priest in New Jersey, Father James McHugh, later Bishop McHugh, saying that they were a model organization for this type of needed activism, and he asked them to help organize a national group. Later that year, in October of 1968, a newsletter under the National Right to Life banner was published out of a print shop in Richmond, Virginia, owned by Alec and Jeline Williams. Jeline served many years as chair of the National Right to Life Board of Directors and remains a valuable member of our board. In order to help this new national organization, the Knights of Columbus placed a nationwide ad in Parade Magazine that said, if you want a brochure on abortion, send this form to, and they gave the home address of Shirley Grant, secretary of VSHL. She was inundated with bags and bags and bags of mail being delivered to her home. So she said, National Right to Life has to get its own office because she wasn't going to do that anymore. <laughs> In 1973, when the Supreme Court decreed abortion on demand would be the law of the land, our response obviously needed to keep growing. National Right to Life formed a federation of the groups that were already in existence in a number of states, and early pioneers invested time and effort into organizing groups in those states that had yet to form one. As the organization grew, the backbone was, and still is, and always will be, the awesome volunteers from around the country who dedicate their time and talent to making a difference in the lives of innocent, defenseless persons. State affiliates began to pass laws which, as we've come to expect, were challenged in court. Some were upheld, some struck down, others reworked and reenacted. 
it became obvious that in order to continue to pass laws to protect the babies and their mothers, we needed to place pro-life men and women into critical positions to make those decisions. We had to be involved in elections. In 1980, the National Right to Life Political Action Committee was formed, and we have made a difference in elections for almost 40 years. In the 2016 election, almost a third of all voters could recall hearing or seeing information from National Right to Life's political committees. From the very beginning, National Right to Life recognized that the lives of the elderly and those with disabilities also needed to be protected from euthanasia, assisted suicide, and rationing of health care. We do love them all. The issue of life remains in the forefront of public discourse, so where are we with the American public? Back in the 1990s, Gallup began to ask people, do you consider yourself to be pro-life or pro-choice? On average, 51% of Americans personally identified as pro-choice, while 40% identified themselves as pro-life. Earlier this month, they released a poll that said 48% consider themselves to be pro-choice, 48% pro-life. That is a huge swing. They went from 40 uh, to four, excuse me, 40, uh, 51 to 48. We went from 40 to 48. So it is now tie. That is a trend. Good news for the babies. Not just taking a label, but they were asked, should abortion be legal? 43% of Americans say abortion should be legal in all or most circumstances. 53% say it should be legal in only a few or no circumstances. So we have made tremendous strides in moving the American public toward the view that unborn children need to be protected. We still have a lot to do to change hearts and minds, but this country is moving in the direction of life. We had good news out of the Supreme Court this week. On Tuesday, the court ruled that the state of California could not force pregnancy resource centers to promote and refer for abortion. The law required licensed pregnancy centers to disclose where women, women could receive free or low-cost abortions and required unlicensed centers to insert state-dictated material in their advertising. The state even said that the size of the font had to be 48 point. That's like an inch high. What I find appalling in this attack was on the you know, First Amendment, free speech rights, four justices on the Supreme Court were willing to support the California law. First Amendment obviously means nothing to them. Other news out of the court this week, some minor stuff. Um, Justice Anthony Kennedy announced that he is retiring as of July 31st. <laughs> National Right to Life, our state affiliates and chapters, and the many volunteers who have worked extremely hard to pass legislation will be happy, I'm sure, because we've been trying to protect those unborn children, but all too often those efforts have been struck down or overridden by judges who believe they have a right to impose their own policy preferences. We look forward to President Trump nominating a jurist who shares the view that Supreme Court justices should enforce the text and original intent of the Constitution and on all other matters, defer to lawmakers elected by the people. <laughs> Following on the appointment of Justice Neil Gorsuch, this opening gives President Trump a second opportunity to shape the court for years to come. 
Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that the Senate will vote on a nominee this fall. Get ready for an epic battle because you know it's coming. And after that battle, we still have a long road ahead of us, but we will keep educating to change hearts and minds. We will keep passing legislation to protect the vulnerable, defenseless ones, and we will keep electing men and women to office to support that legislation. I truly believe we can see the beginning of the end. Victory is on the horizon, so use this convention to learn even more than you already know so that we can bring more and more people to recognize the inherent dignity and worth of every human being, born and unborn. Thank you. Well, Andrew, uh, that was an interesting sort of look back through the history of the whole pro-life movement as well as National Right to Life. It's it's amazing. It's been 50 years since that organization got started. And, uh, you know, we're still right now we're looking at the possibility of another Supreme Court justice and, and looking forward to the hearings. And hopefully uh, we'll have another good pro-life justice in that court. So, as Tobias points out, it's going to be a real fight to get him into the Supreme Court. Right, right. Prayer is appropriate for sure. Well, uh, the next cut is uh, we're going to be talking uh, in this next cut. Dr. George Delgado is the speaker. And, and this is something this is information that we wanted our listeners to know about. Uh, RU486, the abortion pill, actually has a, an antidote, if you will. And so Dr. Delgado talks about this protocol. It's really important. Take some good notes here because you may know somebody, you may run into somebody who needs to have this information. Dr. George Delgado. While the abortion pill, Mifepristone, is taken by a woman who knows she is pregnant, it's approved up to 10 weeks of pregnancy, and she takes it with the intent of aborting a known pregnancy, the end of life of her unborn baby. That's why it's called the abortion pill and not the morning after pill. The real bottom lines here, however, are that the medical abortion is really no different from a traditional surgical abortion. And really, two things happen with both of them. Number one is that the woman is victimized by the medical abortion complex. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the preborn baby is killed. Now, there is one very important difference, and this is why I'm here talking to you today is that with traditional surgical abortion, as soon as the instrument enters the uterus, that's it, it's over. The baby's life is ended. However, with medical abortion, we have a window between the, the two drugs that are taken. If the woman, after taking the first drug, the mifepristone, changes her mind, we now have a very effective and safe means to reverse that medical abortion. So this is indeed a game changer, and you're gonna see some numbers in a second on how popular medical abortion is becoming, and that really gives us the opportunity to minister to these women who very deeply want a second chance at choice and want to have a chance to save the lives of their unborn babies. And it was Dr. Matthew Harrison who has the first recorded reversal of a mifepristone medical abortion. Back in 2006 in North Carolina, Dr. Harrison was in his office when a woman came to him who had taken mifepristone and said, Dr. Harrison, I took mifepristone to abort my baby, but I've changed my mind. Can you help me reverse this mifepristone? Well, of course, he had never heard of a case, and he thought, well, maybe I can give progesterone to reverse the effects of mifepristone. He did that, and he was able to save the life of that baby. Then about two years later, I had a very similar experience. I did not know of Dr. Harrison's case, so this was brand new to me. A patient or client advocate, Terry Palmquist in Bakersfield, California, carries a cell phone while she's praying outside of the abortion clinics, and she takes calls from all over the country. 
She got a call from a woman in El Paso, Texas, who had taken mifepristone and had changed her mind. So Terry called me and said, well, Dr. Delgado, can you help? And I said, well, Terry, I've never heard of this happening before, but I had studied mifepristone even before it was released. I knew how it works. It works by blocking the effects of progesterone. And I had used progesterone quite a bit in my NAPRO technology practice to help women who had low progesterone levels and were at risk of miscarrying their babies. And we know that with those women, if we give progesterone to supplement, bring the levels back up, we can save the babies. So I reasoned if we give some progesterone into the system, it will maybe outcompete the mifepristone, and perhaps we can save this baby. But there was a problem. I was in California. She was in El Paso, Texas. So I got on the phone, and I got a hold of Dr. Jonalyn Bellacura in El Paso. I said, Dr. Bellacura, do you have progesterone in the office? She said, I did. I said, I have an idea how to treat this woman. I'm going to give you some ideas and a protocol. Are you willing to do it? She said yes. She gave the woman progesterone, and we were able to save the life of that baby. And there she is right there two years later. That was Dr. George Delgado. I found that a fascinating talk, seeing how you can reverse the abortion pill. But it has to be done in a very short period right, of time. It has right. to be done very quickly. 72 hours. Right. Our next one was really uh, surprised me. Every time I've heard the word abortion survivor, I've thought about the woman who had the abortion. And what I didn't realize was that there are babies that have survived abortions. And the next one we're going to hear is from Sarah Zagorski, whose mother aborted her at 26 weeks. Or tried to, anyway. Yes. I want to begin my story with you about telling you about my birth mother. Since her death in 2010, I've chosen to remember her in the very best of ways. She had olive skin and jet black curly hair. She spoke Spanish. In other words, she was very different than me, and she looked very different than me. Some of my earliest memories of her were her talking to my siblings in Spanish. She came over here to America from Honduras before she had any children. However, she was also a woman who was deeply troubled. In the late 1980s, she found out that she was pregnant for the seventh time, and this was not a happy realization. She was already a mother to six children, and they fought day to day over canned food and damaged belongings. They lived on government assistance. And what I mean by this is handouts, thrift store clothes, if they were lucky, and for the older ones, the meals they had at school. In my view, she tried her very best to care for her children through her work as a part-time maid in New Orleans. But she always came up short in life. She had obstacle after obstacle to overcome, with the largest being her mental illness. You see, she was diagnosed with schizophrenia in adulthood, which is a type of psychosis that made functioning virtually impossible. To make her situation worse, she didn't have good access to medical care or the ability to follow through on taking her medication. And her pregnancy with me was the result of an affair. She had even been homeless for brief periods of time in her life. So like I said, another pregnancy was not happy news. And after talking with a friend, she decided, decided to seek the help of a New Orleans abortionist who she was told had low costs because access to cheap care was a priority for her. To this day, I am unsure of her intent. Did she fully understand who he was? Did she really want an abortion? I wish I knew those answers. But I do know what the abortionist intended. At 26 weeks, he delivered me breach. 
I wasn't breathing when I was born, and he refused to give me medical care. He then proceeded to tell my mother that I would be a mental vegetable, unable to have a normal life, and he advised her to let me die on the table. But in a miraculous decision, my mother made an amazing pro-life choice and fought for my life. She threatened to sue him if he continued to refuse to get me medical care. And eventually he listened to her and I was sent to a children's hospital where I did receive help and lived. I later learned that that same abortionist who delivered me was under review for performing botched abortions in the late 1980s, which was around the same time I was born. I was born in 1990. I wish I could go on from here and tell you that life was fantastic after such a traumatic entrance into the world, but it simply was not. The truth of it is the events that took place in my mother's home are largely too dark to delve into right now. I often say it's a story I would rather not tell. But I will share a little with you about my childhood experiences as uncomfortable as those were because I believe it is very important for the pro-life community to understand that the majority of women who seek abortion are women like my birth mother. That is the economically disadvantaged women from minority communities and women living in abusive home environments. I won't make you take my word for it though. I'll give you a bit of data. In 2017, a report on why women choose abortion in the US, three-fourths of aborting women end their pregnancies because they can't afford to have another child. And then even, more, even worse is half of women cite partner-related problems, so abuse in the family. To break down that for you more understandably than in terms of mathematics, what this means is some of these women are living in poverty or it are in abuse of families or are running from domestic abuse. This was certainly the world I entered into after I was born. The same year of my birth, the same year, my birth mother gave birth to a set of twins and a year later another child, giving her a total of 11 children. One of her older sons was mentally handicapped, her husband mentally ill also, and her daughters severely depressed from our horrendous home environment. As one of the youngest of my mother's children, I experienced firsthand the ramifications of poverty, that is malnourishment and sickness, eventually even contracting tuberculosis, which can be a life-threatening lung disease from my stepfather. Although I did survive, I was abused day after day at the hands of my biological family and desperately needed a rescue. You see, my childhood dilemma wasn't focused on what activity I wanted to do or game I wanted to play or if I wanted to watch Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers. Instead, it was, was I hungry enough to eat the powdered donut on the ground that was infected, infested with insects? Or where would I hide to escape abuse that day? Would I try to lock myself in a bathroom to avoid being beaten by an older sibling? The question I pondered the most, though, as a child was, would I die here? You might ask me, Sarah, all right, this is all horrible. What, what does this have to do with your abortion story, the story you started with today? And specifically, what does it have to do with being the face of abortion? And I've come to realize it has everything to do with it. Because the solution presented to my mother and to families like mine in our world is to spare children the ongoing suffering I just described by killing them in abortion. And when I hear what I hear when I hear that, I hear this question. Wouldn't you rather die than to live and survive a devastating, potentially unrecoverable childhood? And the answer I now have, without hesitation, is no. 
The choice my mother made to fight for my life was the best one she made as a mother to me, and because of it, I have an amazing life. I was adopted at the age of nine after spending nearly eight years in the Louisiana foster care system. The memories I have with my adoptive family of Florida beach vacations, trips to Chicago to visit cousins, and dinners at our neighborhood restaurant all now outweigh those dark days in my childhood home. I was able to go to college and get married, and most recently meet my, my first child, Jesse, who's here with me at this convention. My adopted mother is here also, and she was able to join me in the delivery room the day my son was born and meet her first grandchild. How is all of that possible? Because of my birth mother's choice to fight for my life. Ultimately, the life I have now is the best gift she could have ever given me, despite all her mistakes. And one of the things I've learned from being a new mother myself is that not only am I the face of abortion, but so is my son. The life-saving work you do to end abortion not only saves lives like mine, but it saves his. So for him and for me, please don't stop. Well, Andrew, the last piece of audio uh, we're going to hear is from Father Frank Pavone. Uh, Frank Pavone is with Priests for Life, and he's been on Bot Radio Network with his one-minute features, and he's been interviewed a number of times. Uh, just a, a phenomenal pro-life influence across the country. And what we're going to hear is just a, a little piece of what he talked about at a breakfast at the National Right to Life Convention. Thank all of you, brothers and sisters, for being here, not only at the breakfast, but at this convention, which has been for me a highlight of every year that I've been coming for the last 25 years. And uh, I've had the opportunity a number of times, actually, to, uh, to keynote the speaking at this particular breakfast. And um, somehow I always got that slot in election years uh, for good reason, I think. But I want to bring you, first of all, the greetings of all of us at Priests for Life. Our executive director, uh, Janet Morana, she's in Rome this week, actually. But she, as you know, co-founded the Silent No More campaign. And the beautiful message that we who reject abortion do not reject those who have had abortions. But we welcome them back. And we let those who have been healed testify. Testify to the healing power of Jesus Christ. And not only the moms, but the dads and the grandparents, friends who were complicit, the abortionists themselves, all of them coming to the mercy of God. You know, we at Priests for Life were very inspired by Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who personally encouraged us, because as you know, he said that in launching the abortion movement, when he looked back on it after he converted, he said, we would have never gotten away with what we did if you, the clergy had been united, purposeful, and strong. And our conviction at Priests for Life is that the culture of death will still not get away with what it's doing if we become more united, purposeful, and strong. And that's our goal. So I want to give the invocation today and use the election prayer that we have composed because we're together this year, brothers and sisters. We're working together this year so that we can elect public servants who know the difference between serving the public and killing the public. And if they don't know that difference, they don't belong in public office. We're working together this year to elect public servants who understand that there is an immigration crisis, but that the first immigrant is the unborn child, and that there is a crisis at the border. There's a crisis at the border of the womb. And they're not being detained, 
and they're not being deported, they're being dismembered. And that's got to stop. We're never going to be able to welcome the immigrant if we can't welcome our own children across the border of the womb. And so we pray this prayer that comes from electionprayer.com, which we are using as a key tool for inspiring and mobilizing people in this election year. Let us pray. O oh God, we acknowledge you today as Lord, not only of individuals, but of nations and governments. We thank you for the privilege of being able to organize ourselves politically and of knowing that political loyalty does not have to mean disloyalty to you. We thank you for your law, which our founding fathers acknowledged and recognized as higher than any human law. We thank you for the opportunity that this election year puts before us to exercise our solemn duty not only to vote, but to influence countless others to vote and to vote correctly. Lord, we pray that your people may be awakened. Let them realize that while politics is not their salvation, their response to you requires that they be politically active. Awaken your people to know that they are not called to be a sect fleeing the world, but rather a community of faith renewing the world. Awaken them that the same hands lifted up to you in prayer are the hands that pull the lever in the voting booth, that the same eyes that read your word are the eyes that read the names on the ballot, and that they do not cease to be Christians when they enter the voting booth. Awaken your people to a commitment to justice, to the sanctity of marriage and the family, to the dignity of each individual human life, and to the truth that human rights begin when human lives begin, and not one moment later. Lord, we rejoice today that we are citizens of your kingdom. May that make us all the more committed to being faithful citizens on earth. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless you all. So you've just had an opportunity to hear uh, just a few, Andrew, of the, the highlights from the National Right to Life Convention held in Kansas City toward the end of June. And uh, we're glad to, to bring this to you. You know, it's still a struggle. It's still going on. I'm surprised that we're still even having to deal with this. 60 million babies have been aborted since Roe versus Wade, and it has to be turned around. And we know a lot of our listeners have gotten involved in, in so many different ways, supporting pregnancy resource centers, uh, helping to fund uh, ultrasounds that, that really do save babies' lives. So we thank you for the, the great things that you've done and will continue to do. So, Andrew, again, thanks for uh, joining us on this broadcast. My and, pleasure. And thanks for the work you did gathering this audio for us. For Bot Radio Network, this is Eben Fowler along with Andrew Yates. Thanks for listening. <laughs>